Hello everyone and welcome to the second season of the History of Modern Greece, where we cover the subject of the fall of Constantinople to the modern day. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George. Hi, my name's George. And our music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is episode 62, The Byzantine Golden Age, Basil II, part 4. The first time Basil went into Bulgaria, he was grossly defeated. And not just because he underestimated the amount of planning and logistics that went into besieging cities, but also because he didn't have his secret weapon. That secret being the Varangian Guard, which he acquired from Vladimir the Great during the Civil War. The main purpose of the Varangian Guard was to physically protect the Emperor, but on special occasions they served in battle. The Guard was mainly the personal bodyguards to the Emperor. Basil chose them to be his bodyguards because the Varangians had a strong tradition of fierce loyalty once they swore the oath of allegiance to the Emperor. Unlike local recruits who could change their loyalty like the wind, the Varangians were well paid and had a unique privilege. When the Byzantine Emperor died, they were permitted to run to the Imperial Treasury and take as much gold and as many gems as they could carry. This privilege allowed many Varangians to return home immensely wealthy, which only encouraged more men to travel from Sweden to Constantinople. Fun Fact one of those Varangians who did very well was Harold Hardraga. He enlisted and eventually rose to be the leader of the guard. After amassing great wealth, which he kept safe by shipping it to a stronghold in Kiev for safekeeping, in 1042, Harold left the guard and went to be king of Norway. With Basil's army in Bulgaria and the Varangian guard at his side, Basil was basically unstoppable. No matter where he went in Bulgaria, he always won the battle. Unfortunately for him, there is more to winning the war than winning battles. If you need an example from history, there is no greater example than Hannibal. He won every single battle, but still lost the war. The key to victory was the knockout punch. Basil marched his soldiers into the country, conquered his city, and held it, but never defeated the army. As soon as Basil's forces left the city, it reverted back to the Bulgarian influence. Sometime between the years 992 and 995 CE, Basil marched deep into Bulgaria and captured several cities and forts, and even managed to capture a very important figure in Bulgaria. If you recall, from the beginning of Basil's reign, he appointed a puppet czar to Bulgaria, in order to delegitimize Samuel. This was intended to keep the Bulgars busy amongst themselves while the Byzantines fought their civil wars in Anatolia. Well, there was no need to keep that puppet around any longer. Basil captured the eunuch Tsar and brought him back to Constantinople in captivity. And he wasn't terribly upset with the puppet Tsar, as Basil was the one who propped him up in the first place but he couldn't tolerate him being in the Bulgarian sphere of influence anymore. Samuel tried the defensive approach at first, fighting back against the Byzantines wherever he could. But the defeats were becoming a little too hard to absorb. 
The strategy needed to be more two-sided. So by the mid-990s, Samuel split his forces into two groups. He left half of his army in Bulgaria proper to defend against the ruthless Basil II. And then he took the second half of his army and marched them south, into the heartland of the Byzantine Empire. Samuel struck at places that hurt the empire's morale. He marched into Macedonia and went even further into Thessaly. While Basil was dealing with the trouble in Syria, one of his top commanders was captured, leaving the European war against Bulgaria leaderless. Basil II couldn't afford to leave Syria at the time, nor could afford to leave the campaign in Europe leaderless with Samuel raiding mainland Greece. So in 996 CE, Basil appointed a new general to lead the fight against Samuel. And this new general was Nikephorus Oronos. Despite Basil having a competent general looking after events in Europe, Samuel saw this as an opportunity to really drive a nail into the Greek homeland. At this point in time, Samuel had been almost undefeated, and since Basil was gone, he more or less felt like he was unstoppable. Now, this is somewhat of a similar trait that Basil and Samuel shared. Samuel took his army and marched them south, beyond Macedonia and beyond Thessaly. He brought his army right up to the banks of the Spercheos River and crossed over. If you aren't 100% sure where that river is, then we'll give you a quick description. This is the river just north of Boeotia, Thebes, and to the west of the great island Euboea. This is the very same river that flows into the valley of Thermopylae. That's right. This is the exact same place where the 300 Spartans fought against Xerxes and the Persian army. From here on, the cities of Thebes, Athens, Corinth, Megara are all in striking distance. Unfortunately for Samuel, he wasn't alone. General Nikephorus Ouranos was proving to be a very competent ruler in Basil's absence, and he was right on Samuel's tail, following the Bulgars all the way down to the river Spercheos. Samuel was on the other side of the river, and General Nikephorus Ouranos had not caught up to him yet. But the rain came, and the river swelled, growing impassable. This was the best thing that could have happened to Samuel. By the time Uranos caught up to him, the river was raging, and there was no way to get across. The two armies could do nothing more than look at each other from a distance. While the two commanders stared at each other, they came up with plans for what to do next. Obviously, Samuel wanted to continue south and take on the Greek polis. And Uranos wanted to cross the river and kill Samuel before he could do that. That night, Samuel and his army went to bed knowing that they were safe and sound for the time being, and that they could assess the situation in the morning. However, Uranos, being a little more familiar with the imperial land, did not go to sleep. Leaving the campfires lit and a few guards on the edge of the river to make it look like they went to sleep, 
Nikephoros Uranos brought his army up the river until they found a safe spot to cross. This wasn't the biggest river in the world, so they didn't exactly have to march that far. But the entire army made it across the river in the darkness of night. And then very carefully and quietly, they marched back down the south side of the river until they were perched right outside the light of the enemy campfires. Instead of attacking at night, which is very risky and hard to coordinate, the Byzantine soldiers got into formation and then rested. Their armor was on. Their shields were gripped. Their swords were at the ready. But then everyone took a knee and rested. All the while, the Bulgars were sleeping peacefully, maybe even drinking or eating, and the guards posted were not going too far out in the dark. Maybe it's because they saw the fires from the enemy camp across the river and assumed all was well. But everything changed when the sun came up. Seizing the initiative, Nikephoros Uranos gave the orders to attack as soon as it was light. The enemy was caught completely off guard, with most men still asleep. The fully formed Byzantine army smashed through the camp with their spears and swords, cutting through and killing every Bulgar standing with a weapon. Anyone who rushed out of their tent with a sword in hand was chopped down. It was a massacre. Thousands died and over 10,000 were taken prisoner, most likely captured while sleeping without their armor. By the time the sun broke over the horizon, the battle was over. Bodies laid all over the ground. Tents were shredded and ripped down. And tens of thousands of prisoners sat in the center while the Byzantines processed them. There were two survivors who were not taken. Two of the bodies lying in the killing fields were still alive. In fact, they were merely playing dead, probably hiding under other corpses or covering themselves with blood. This was Samuel, the leader of the Bulgarian uprising, and his own son. The two managed to escape this terrible defeat and survived to fight another day by hiding among the bodies on the battlefield. To think just how close this war came to ending, it's almost similar to the initial conflict that started this all, where Basil and his entourage barely escaped the gates of Trajan with their lives. As you would assume, Samuel was defeated, both emotionally and physically. He was lucky he escaped with his life. Who knows how long it took to sneak back into Bulgaria, and all the things he had to do to lay low. Did he disguise himself as a peasant? Did he only travel at night? Did he smuggle himself in a barrel of wine? These are details we will never know, but what we do know is that he was a defeated man when he returned to Bulgaria. He was so defeated that he started negotiations with the Byzantines for their conditional surrender. Basil was all too eager for a peace deal, as he had many grand plans for the empire. But something happened that completely derailed peace talks. The puppet Tsar, who Basil installed himself, then deposed himself, died in Constantinople. When the news made it back to Bulgaria, the people started to rally around Samuel. 
He was their leader, their inspiration, their hope for freedom and independence. Suddenly, Samuel felt reinvigorated. He called off the peace talks with Basil and declared himself the Tsar of Bulgaria. Up until now, he had been nothing more than a rebel leader. But now he was a Caesar, the Bulgarian emperor, a title that commanded respect. As you can imagine, when Basil heard this news, he lost his mind with rage. If he had a drinking cup in his hand at the time, I'm sure he smashed it on the floor. Basil II immediately ordered General Uranos to go into Bulgaria and burn everything to the ground. The trouble with this instance was that Samuel had no army to fight back. Everyone was slaughtered or captured at the battle in Thermopylae. The Bulgarians had to watch helplessly as the Greeks roamed their countryside massacring peasants and civilians and burning crops and cities. It was a nightmare for the Bulgarian people, and there was nothing Samuel could do. The one thing that did come out of this that worked in Samuel's favor was the fact that the Bulgarians were angry, angry enough to support Samuel in his righteous war against the Byzantine Empire. Over the next few years, Basil II ransacked the Bulgarian countryside and managed to isolate Samuel into a small portion of the Bulgarian mountains. Samuel only had a few cities left to his cause. It was almost the end for him, but in desperate move, he marched his army into Byzantium and attacked the great city of Adrianople. He failed, of course, but it was enough to anger Basil. But for Basil, this didn't matter. He knew it was almost over. Samuel was fading from power and influence, and it was only a matter of time before he was wiped off the map entirely. So Samuel started his new plan, a plan made from desperation a plan to strike back at the empire in a way that would hurt them deeply and give Bulgaria the strength it needed to break free from the Byzantine yoke. The historians who cover this war have left a ten-year gap in the narrative. All we know for sure, according to John Skylitzes, the historian who covered this war in detail, is that the war continued and Basil invaded Bulgaria every single year. Bulgar generals and officials were defecting to the Byzantines, and Basil II rewarded all of them with high-ranking positions and titles in Anatolia. We also know that many new generals came to power during this lost decade. In 1014 CE, Tsar Samuel knew he was too weak to take the Byzantines on in open battle, so his plan was to stop them from entering his heartland at the narrow pass of Clydon. This battle was very important to Samuel, not only for defense, but he needed to win because he was losing client states who were quickly switching alliances. The Byzantines were marching through the pass when they came to an enormous wood wall, heavily defended by the Bulgars. The attack began, but the Byzantines were repulsed and suffered many casualties. Basil decided to send his general, Nicephorus Xiphius, with his troops around the mountains to get behind the Bulgars. The Byzantine general, Nicephorus Xiphius, 
sent his men out into the mountains, scouting for a safe place to march an army that could get through the mountains and into the valley behind the Bulgarians. This tactic itself was dangerous too because the Bulgars could have traps waiting for them all over the mountains. How many Greek soldiers thought they'd found a mountain pass around the Bulgars only to walk right into a trap where thousands of boulders were pushed over a cliff or a rain of arrows descended upon the scattered Greeks hiking through the trails. On July 14th, 1014, General Nikephorus found that perfect route through the mountains and marched his army through the pass and snuck out into the valley behind the Bulgarian forces. The entire maneuver was executed perfectly as Tsar Samuel had no idea there was a Byzantine army closing in on him from the rear. Because of the nature of this valley, there was no way for the Bulgarians to escape. When they saw the army closing in from the rear, chaos broke out in the narrow valley. With the Byzantine army attacking from the rear, Basil gave the orders to attack the wooden wall. And among all the chaos, the wall was breached. As Bulgars tried to escape in every direction, the two Greek forces closed in and captured the entire army. While the panic and chaos was breaking out among the ranks of Bulgars, two men managed to sneak away. Samuel and his son managed to sneak off into the bushes and either laid low or crawled up the side of the mountain and slipped away. If it is true that they snuck away, then it is safe to imagine that there were dozens, if not hundreds, of Bulgars who ran up each side of the mountains and just kept climbing, despite enemy arrows firing upon them. Either way, this was a huge victory for Basil and a terrible loss for Samuel. With over 10,000 prisoners sitting on the ground, Basil and his generals needed to come up with a plan. How are they going to move forward with this war now that they captured one of Samuel's largest armies? They captured an entire army of Samuel's before, and that never stopped the fighting. In fact, this war had been going on for nearly three decades at this point. It is here, at this moment, that Basil made one of the cruelest, most brutal decisions of the medieval period. Basil ordered that the 15,000 soldiers be divided up into groups of 100. That alone took some work. But when all of the men were split up into their groups of 100 and were then tied to each other, the true horror began. Systematically, the army grabbed the last man in the chain gang, pinned him down, while the soldiers either stabbed their eyes out or burned them with hot irons. And just based on the amount of soldiers who were tied up, it seems more likely that their eyes were stabbed, but the known tradition in Byzantium at this time was to use red-hot iron pokers. No matter how they did it, the sound in Clyden Valley on July 29th, 1014, would have been the most horrific sounds, the screaming soldiers as they were blinded, 
the crying soldiers who were tied together at the front of the line waiting their turn as one by one the army went up the line blinding everyone in both eyes. The only lucky Bulgars in this scenario were the ones tied at the front of the line. They were only blinded in one eye. And once the horrific deed was done, the Bulgars were lifted off the ground and sent hiking through the mountain pass. They were free to go home. 150 columns of blinded soldiers slowly marching through the mountains, led by one half-blinded man at the front. Samuel and his son Gavril made it back to the capital before word had made it back as to the fate of his captured army. Samuel probably knew some terrible fate awaited his men. Perhaps he thought they were dead, or maybe they were taken prisoner. When word made it to Samuel that his army was returning, he came out to see them. The excitement would have died down very soon, especially once people noticed they were walking slow and were all tied together. Was there a smile on Samuel's face when he first saw the troops were alive? And if he did have a smile, it quickly turned. He would have noticed something was terribly wrong long before he saw the mutilated faces. It's also very likely that people would have seen this sad caravan of blind soldiers long before and rode ahead to warn Samuel. But as soon as it became visible, Samuel went into shock. The absolute horror of seeing 15,000 blind men walking in tandem, starving, weak, and diseased. Some of them infected. All of their eyes cut out or burned out. The horror on Samuel's face manifested inside of his body, and the Bulgar Tsar dropped to the ground. He either had a stroke or a heart attack, and a few days later, he was pronounced dead. The fact that Basil had 15,000 prisoners of war blinded before sending them back to their homes was both sadistic and twisted, but it was also a cold and calculated decision made to end the war with Bulgaria as fast as possible. This war was already the longest war in all of Roman history, but it wasn't the cruelest fate the Romans had done to their prisoners. Over a thousand years before, a slave rebellion ended with thousands of men being strung up on the side of the road like modern-day telephone poles. Only they were crucified and left to slowly die. So every traveler on the road could watch them slowly suffer and die before their bodies turned to rot and decomposed on the poles. At least these prisoners were left alive. But maybe leaving them alive was the purpose. If Basil simply tortured and murdered his captured prisoners, everything would have ended there. Samuel might have been able to muster up a new army and prolong the war for another ten years. By sending the blinded soldiers home, the Bulgarian government was going to have to live with these disabled veterans permanently. Thousands of blind beggars would fill every village. The Tsar would be forced to feed them 
and take care of them if they ever wanted to claim the right of Tsar. How could you ever try and recruit soldiers again if there was a constant reminder of what happened to men who went against the Byzantines? The blinded soldiers would become a burden on society and destroy morale. It was a constant reminder of what Basil would do to you as well as what little the Bulgars could do for you if you were ever captured and mutilated. The crazy thing is, this war did continue. In fact, the war between Bulgaria and Byzantium went on for another four years. And every single time Basil caught Bulgar prisoners of war, he had them blinded and sent back to their homeland. Basil was a cruel man and a cold leader, but he knew that this war needed to end. Piece by piece, bit by bit, Basil took over Bulgaria. Some cities changed sides peacefully as they wanted nothing to do with the rebels and just wanted peace with Byzantium. It's also very possible that the entire reason the fighting continued for four more years is because the Bulgars were terrified of surrendering. If the prisoners of war were blinded, then perhaps everyone needed to fight to the very bitter end. Better to die on the battlefield than to be tortured and mutilated and left to rot in the gutter. With Samuel, the Tsar of the revived Bulgarian Empire, dead, the crown was passed on to his son Gavril. Even though he was the son and heir to Samuel, and he wore the crown of the Tsar, Gavril was not able to live up to the reputation of his father. The country was demoralized and they did not seem to follow Gavril as they did Samuel. It was the middle of winter when word finally made it back to Basil. Samuel was dead. This is exactly the news he wanted to hear. With all of his troops garrisoned over the winter, Basil ran around getting his generals ready, ordering his officers and soldiers. There was no time to rest, there was no time to wait. The Byzantine soldiers were going on campaign. Just as Tsar Gavril was trying to get control of the Bulgarian rebel states, a massive Byzantine army marched through the mountains in the dead of winter and dealt a crushing blow to the Bulgars. Two major cities were taken from the Bulgars, and then the army marched south to Thessalonica, wiping the Bulgarian forces out of the area. Gavril knew it was over. There was no will to fight and no way to win. In the summer of 1015, Gavril sent negotiators to Basil's court to seek peace. Unfortunately for Gavril, he was assassinated before any peace talks could start. The assassin and usurper was Vladislav, the cousin of Gavril. And it just so happened that Vladislav also wanted peace with the Byzantines. There was someone, though, who did not want peace and that someone was Basil. All that Basil wanted was the complete conquest of Bulgaria, and anyone who claimed to be Tsar was no more than a traitor. Basil hunted down Vladislav, chasing him throughout Bulgaria, and blinding every single Bulgar prisoner he came across. It's amazing at how much of a fight the Bulgars were able to still put up as a Byzantine army was surrounded and completely destroyed during this campaign. 
However, that did not stop Basil from marching right across the Balkans and tracking down Vladislav to the city of Dyrrachium in Epirus. In 1017, Basil continued his raids into Bulgaria and even took a very wealthy city. When they were dividing up the loot of the city, Basil took one-third of the treasure for himself. He then gave another third of the loot to all of the regular soldiers of the Byzantine army. And the final third of the loot he gave to the Varangian guard. It is right around this time that Basil learned of an alliance being negotiated between Tsar Vladislav of Bulgaria and the Khan of the Pechenegs from the Steplands. If this alliance were to go through, then an entire horde of horse archers would flood into Bulgaria and drag the conflict out for another half century. This was the very last thing that Basil needed right now. So his primary objective was to deal the final blow to Bulgaria. In February 1018, Vladislav led another siege attempt at the city of Dorachium, where he was struck down by a defender. Either by arrow or sword, it is unknown. And there are different accounts as to how he died. Some say he was murdered by his servants, and others say he died in a duel. All that matters is that Vladislav was dead, and with him, died the Bulgarian Empire. A snowball effect followed the loss of Vladislav, and generals and officials throughout the empire began surrendering to the Roman Emperor. The death of Vladislav commonly marks the end of the Bulgar-Byzantine Wars. As the generals of the Bulgarian army surrendered, they were offered accommodations and titles within the Byzantine Empire. This was all part of Basil II's plan to absorb the Bulgars into his empire, and use them as a counterbalance to the powerful families in Anatolia, such as the Focades. However, not every general surrendered their city. There were a few who thought it was wise to hold out to the bitter end, and when their cities were finally taken, their general was dragged out into the court, and in front of everyone was blinded. Every single surviving member of Samuel's family was then gathered up and brought back to the court of Constantinople. There they were given fancy clothes and fancy titles and told they were going to spend the very last of their days in the court of Constantinople. This was a very fancy way of keeping them held prisoner with honors. They would have no freedom but they would also not be humiliated or tortured to death. So a win-win, I guess. As you can assume, Basil II threw himself a triumph after winning the longest war in imperial history. And as a final insult, Samuel's relatives were forced to participate in this triumph. After winning the war with Bulgaria, Basil II went on tour with his Varangian guard inspecting the newly acquired land he had won for the empire. This had been a battlefield for over three decades, and now it was his to govern. After his grand tour, he marched all the way south to Athens, and he marched up the Acropolis to the Parthenon, a major structure in all of Greece. And there he prayed to the Virgin Mary, 
and thanked her for his victory. It's kind of neat to think that after all this time in Greek life, the Parthenon was still there, and it was still a part of Greek society. Only instead of being a temple to Athena and a hoard of Delian gold, it was now converted to a church and rededicated to the Virgin Mary. Now that Basil II had succeeded in conquering Bulgaria, it took him a few years to decide where his next campaign was going to be. He had every right to spend the rest of his life in comfort and peace at the palace in Constantinople. But Basil was a general emperor. A man who felt more comfortable fighting on the front line than by governing from the palace. However, there were problems going in the east that brought Basil back to the frontiers of Syria. There were major persecutions in the Fatimid Caliphate, where Christians were being tortured and killed, which led to a flood of Christian refugees leaving the Caliphate for the Roman Empire. In 1021, Basil II marched his army across Anatolia and entered the eastern realm of the empire which he'd more or less left in the hands of his generals for the last two decades of the Bulgarian War. While Basil was in the east, he received a message from an Armenian king in one of the buffer states to the east. The Armenian's message was simple. He wanted to hand over his entire kingdom to the emperor in exchange for a fancy title and a position in the court. The reason? The Armenians were under constant attack from a growing power in the east. It was becoming too much work for the little kingdom to defend itself, and the survival of his people and the king's bank account was to be absorbed by the empire. Obviously, this worked out for Basil, and it worked out for the king of the Armenian kingdom. But who was it in the east that was giving the Armenians such a tough go? It was another steppe tribe, a Turkic steppe tribe. It wasn't the Khazars or the Pechenegs, but it was a difficult tribe that was relentless in its attacks. The man put in charge of the new province of the Byzantine Empire was a man named Nikephorus. Nikephorus Komnenos. On its own, this does not seem like a big deal, but the Komnenos and the Turks will become the major players in the second half of season two. And the Turks, well, they will never go away. A major problem with Basil wasn't the length of his borders or the strength of his city walls. Basil II was not married. He had no children and no clear line of succession. The next in line was Constantine, Basil's younger brother. But Constantine himself didn't have any sons of his own. There was a clear problem here. And the lack of apparent heir led some of the generals in the east to rebel against Basil II. And one of those generals who rebelled against him was Nikephorus Xiphias, along with the Focates, the Focus family. The rebellion failed miserably, but it was a sign of things to come. What was going to happen to the empire when Basil died? How long could the Byzantine Golden Age last if there was no emperor to lead them? In the year 1022, exactly a thousand years ago today, while on campaign in the east, Basil went to war with the Georgian prince, Georgi. Basil suspected him of collaborating with the rebels Nikephorus Ziphia 
and the Fakadis, and so went to war against his small state in the Caucasus. Basil was a cruel and brutal warmongerer by this time, and when he marched on the Caucasian prince, he massacred his army, blinded every single prisoner taken alive, and then decapitated the heads of the dead soldiers and built a pyramid out of their skulls. This was typical cruelty that the Bulgarians had grown accustomed to, but Georgi had never seen such acts of barbarity. In fact, these acts frightened him and everyone in his command. Georgi was very willing to come to the negotiating table after seeing what monster he was up against. And part of the peace talks demanded that Basil receive a bunch of hostages, including the son of Georgi, so as to have leverage over the prince of Georgia, just in case he ever thought of rebelling against the Roman emperor in the future. After returning to Constantinople in 1023, Basil had to come up with a new campaign. Now, in my opinion, the best campaign could have been that uh, he could have found an heir to the greatest empire on the planet. But Basil didn't think that was as important. Instead, Basil focused his attention in the West. And not Bulgaria. He had his eyes locked on Italy. All of Italy once belonged to the empire. In fact, it was the birthplace of the Roman Empire. And now it was split between the Holy Roman Empire in the north, the Fatimid Caliphate in the south, with the Byzantines controlling the center. Now, even though the Byzantines held control over the center of Italy, this was more or less ignored by all the emperors. Now, here is an interesting link between the Holy Roman Empire and the Byzantine Empire. Otto III, emperor in the west, had a Byzantine mother, and now he wanted to marry a Byzantine princess. It also happened that Constantine, Basil's brother, had three daughters. With no heir, Basil's empire was left dangling by a thread. Yet here was this Holy Roman Empire with ties to the royal family in Constantinople. What great things could have happened had the two empires been reunited through marriage. Otto III was eager to meet the princesses, and several men were sent to meet each other and agree upon a marriage arrangement. One of Constantine's daughters traveled across the Adriatic to marry the Holy Roman Emperor, but to her shock, found out that her future husband was already dead. So this alliance between the two empires died right there. And who are we kidding? Just because the two were set to get married doesn't mean the East and West would reunite. It's just fun to think about. In 1022, the new Holy Roman Emperor, Heinrich III, invaded the Byzantine territory in southern Italy. This brought Basil's attention back to the West, where it would remain for the rest of his life. The invasion didn't amount to too much in terms of Holy Roman Empire victories, as a campaign ended with disease and plague, forcing the Germans to retreat back north. Heinrich himself might have even caught the same disease, as it wasn't long after that he dropped dead. In 1024, Basil launched a campaign against Croatia, 
and used his forces from Italy, combined with his forces from Bulgaria, and pinched the Croatian state from both sides. This was all done in an attempt to win over the Venetians, who were once citizens of the great Byzantine Empire. At the time, Venice and Byzantium were on good terms, as they had shared interests in culture and history, but also because the Venetian ships could transport the Byzantine soldiers anywhere throughout the Adriatic. Basil's dream of conquering the West and reuniting the entire empire hinged on the cooperation of Venice. By taking out Croatia, Basil was catering to the wants and needs of Venice. The greatest campaign of Basil's career was set to follow Croatia. With the detachments from southern Italy, the ships from Venice and the Varangian Guard, along with new recruits from Bulgaria, the invasion of Sicily was set in motion. This was a very detailed military plan that required all of his generals and allies to coordinate in this three-pronged attack. The plan was set to begin in 1026. The Fatimid Caliphate's grip on Italy by way of Sicily was about to come to an end. On December 15th, 1025 CE, Basil II died. With his death died the plans of a Sicilian invasion. Basil was the longest reigning imperial in all of Roman history, with a total of 62 years on the throne, some of it as a co-emperor as a child, many of it as the sole emperor as an adult. He fought and won the longest war in Roman history, and he no doubt goes down as one of the greatest emperors in all of Roman and Byzantine history. Basil didn't die in his sleep. He fell ill and knew the end was coming. He called for his brother Constantine and gave him his final wishes. Basil II was such a great ruler that throughout his reign he had to expand the treasury in order to hold all of his gold. The empire was literally more wealthy than it had ever been since the Arab conquests. Now Basil II also marks the peak of the Byzantine Golden Age. In fact, from here on out, it's all downhill. Byzantium will never produce an emperor as great as Basil again. And despite all of his gains and achievements for the empire, Basil failed in one thing. That was securing a clear and strong line of secession. And that one failing was enough to undo everything. Not just everything he himself won, but everything the Roman Empire ever achieved, ever. Basil's brother, Constantine, became emperor in 1025 CE. And although he was Basil's younger brother, he too was an older man with no sons to take over. And when we return in our next episode, we will enter the slow decline and fall of the Byzantine Empire. But that date is over 400 years away from the end of this episode. So that brings us to the end of our episode on Basil II. But something uh, came to our attention, and that was how Basil returned to Athens 
and then marched up to the Parthenon. And it made us think, you know, we haven't talked about the Parthenon in many, many episodes. The Parthenon itself was built in 447 BC when the Athenians moved the gold from the Delian League to their capital. At that time, it was the center of power in the Athenian League. And then the Roman Empire conquered everyone, and that kind of moved the center of power away from Athens. And then it moved to Constantinople. Athens pretty much became a backwater. So we, we never really get to see the Parthenon anymore. We don't really know what happened to it. We don't know, was it sacked? Did an earthquake ever break it up? And um, they rededicated it from Athena to Mary the Virgin. So all the statues that were there dedicated to Athena. I'm just wondering if they tore them down when they converted to Christianity. Or did they just rename them and dedicate them to the Virgin Mary? Or were they rebuilt or refurnished? Or was it just a renaming process? Hmm, the converting of statues. Uh, I really don't know the answer, so this is just a guess. I've I've read in other accounts where, like in Ireland, uh, Saint Bridget, who's the main a saint, main saint of Ireland. Uh, apparently, before they were Christianized, she was somebody else, Saint Bridget or something like that. And uh, all they did was just rename her <laughs> and rededicate her. So who knows? Maybe, like I said, this is a guess. Could be totally wrong. But maybe one of the, for a while, the Virgin Mary statue might have been just a dressed-up Athena. We can't leave the episode like this. So we're just going to quickly Google it and find out the answer. Yeah. So we looked it up, and it turns out the, the Parthenon was only dedicated to the Virgin Mary in the 6th century. So about 500 years before the end of this episode. And by that point, everything had been dilapidated. The Athena statues were removed. So they really let it go to waste, and then they dedicated it to the Virgin Mary. So, so all the statues of Virgin Mary were new. But now we know. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the History of Modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome. <laughs>